I want us to go back and look at a familiar passage, one that we looked at actually a couple of weeks ago. And I want us to dig and mine a little deeper into this so we can see all that God has to say to us. As I began to think about this passage again out of 1 John, I started thinking about when you go to a, a, a store and you start looking at cleaning products, there are multiple cleaning products on the shelf. You know, used to your, your, your grandparents or your parents used one or two things. And now we have cleaning products for everything. Every particular item in your house has a cleaning product for that item. I mean, you, you, you got to buy 35 things. You have to add a room to your house and you have to get all these items that, that do these various things and clean these various items not intended for this, but you can use it for this and this and this. And then, you know, you got to have one for the bathroom, one for the kitchen, uh, one for the living room, one for the furniture, one for the wood floor. It has to be the right kind for the right wood floor. Then you need a carpet cleaner and it has to be the right kind of carpet cleaner. And, and when you think about it, there's a, a billions of dollars of an industry in cleaning products. But there is one priceless cleaning product that cost God everything. And it did not clean surfaces. It cleaned out our hearts. And that cleaning product is the blood of Jesus Christ. And for me to have fellowship with God, and for me to walk in fellowship with God, I have to understand that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, you and I understand that when we're born again, as Jesus said in John 3, that you can't be unborn again. You, you get born and then you get born again. You're born once, you're born again once, you you're, can't be unborn. But I can break the fellowship of that relationship by unconfessed sin in my life. And if I'm interested in the relationship that I have with Christ, then I need to stay up to date with it. Now, all of us have people that we know. Uh, this past week, I got to spend some time with some friends in Lincoln, Nebraska that I haven't seen in a couple of years with Warren and Betty Wiersbe, and Jim and I were able to go and spend the day with them and uh, steal some stuff out of his library and some other things. But, you know, I talk to him about every week. But I've got pastor friends that I know, and, and I see them at a convention or I see them at a conference, and we say, hey, how are you? How's your church doing? How are things going? You know, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And, and I may not even know their wives and may have never met their children. They are in many ways acquaintances, but they're not intimate friends. They're not the people that I share what's going on really in my life. I just deal with the surface stuff. But with the people that I am interested in investing in with friendship, we talk on a different level and a deeper level. And so th either through emails or letters or phone calls or whatever it might be, we maintain a deeper relationship and it requires attention. And with those, you don't say, well, I'm, and I don't know who called last. You, you just maintain the relationship and you maintain the fellowship and the extent to which I enjoy any relationship is determined by the depth of the fellowship. 
the extent of any relationship you have in your family, with your friends, or ultimately with God, the extent of the depth of that relationship is determined by your fellowship, how much you're spending time with God, how much you are making sure that the bridges are open and the pathways are open and there's no barrier between you and the Lord. In John 15 and verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do as I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Remember the song uh, that we sing on occasion, I am a friend of God? He calls me friend is based on that verse right there. Some, some of us are old enough to remember what a friend we have in Jesus. We sing that sometimes. How do we maintain a friendship relationship with God? How do we maintain an intimacy with God where he doesn't seem like a distant deity, where he doesn't seem like he's way out there somewhere and, and we're having a hard time connecting with him? How do we maintain that kind of relationship with a holy God who hates sin but loves sinners? How do we build that relationship up? You see, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, and they blew it. They all forsook him. Peter denied him three times. Peter, James, and John fell asleep in the garden. They didn't do what he commanded them to do. And yet he called them friends. Now, that word friend is a powerful word. You need to understand what that word friend means. It means, in the Greek, a friend at court. It is a, a term tied to a king or an emperor. A friend at court. Someone in the emperor's inner circle. Someone who can hear the secrets of the kingdom and can also be willing to obey the commands of the king. That's what this word means. In fact, in John chapter 3 and verse 39, the word is used for the bridegroom, for the best, for the best man of, of, a, of a bridegroom at a wedding. It is someone who is intimately acquainted, who shares our secrets, who understands our hearts. That's the kind of relationship that a loving God wants to have with us. He wants us to tell him our hurts, our needs, he wants to know the innermost part of our being, but if there's anything in our lives that breaks that fellowship, we can't have that kind of intimacy. A wall begins to build up. Three times, Abraham is called in the Bible a friend of God. And we know how close of a friend Abraham was to God because God said of Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? He was a friend of God, but he was also a servant of God. You see, if, if I am a friend, I'm no longer a slave, but now I've called you friends because I've told you what I've heard from my father. That means that I am in God's family, God's inner circle, and not only that, but I am willing to obey what he says to me because he is my king of kings and lord of lords. And so I want to begin reading in verse 3 of 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. We need a consciousness of sin. Now by that, I, I'm not talking about a moral inter, uh, morbid introspection that just you start thinking, oh, I wonder what I've done. Let me see if I can figure it out. You know, just navel gazing, trying to figure out that I've got everything, but it's an honest evaluation of where I am. Hey, you know when you blow it. Now, you may not want anybody to know that you know it, or you may hope that God doesn't know it, but you know when you blow it. You know when you do something that's not consistent with the life of Christ. I know it, you know it. And there needs to be a consciousness of sin that we just don't let that roll off of our backs and pretend that it didn't happen, but that we let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and tell us what it is that we need to do. We have a intimate relationship that anytime that fellowship is broken we want to get it right as quick as we can if you study the history of revival you will discover that the people that God used to spark revival are the people individuals or groups that in an environment of prayer realize the seriousness of their sin that in the presence of a holy God, they realized that their sin had caused them to break fellowship or caused God to remove his blessings from the land. When Isaiah went into the presence of God, he didn't say, yippee, he said, woe is me. Because he realized that God was holy and he was a man of unclean lips. In verses 8 and 10, it says the same thing in basically two different ways. And some Bible scholars believe that John was in fact thinking of a person or a group of people in the church who were actually saying some of these things, that they had not sinned. That uh, he had heard somebody say, when he says, if we say, that he maybe had heard somebody say, you know, I, I don't sin anymore, I, I'm free of sin. Uh, there are some people that believe that we only have one nature, that we don't have, we don't have two natures. And <clears throat> when I was w with Warren Wiersbe this last week, he was talking about a particular preacher of the past who, who believed there was only one nature, that when you got saved, your old nature was eradicated. And, and he said, I was with a preacher, Layman Strauss preached with him, and Layman said, I have seen him off the platform, and he has more than one nature. Folks, you call it what you will, but there's a part of us that wants to sin. There's a part of us that rebels against God, that has to be corrected and disciplined. 
because there's a part of us that is not going to be totally changed until we get a resurrected body. And so John is talking here about people who say, if you say that you have no sin, he says they've been deceived. Now, if I got up here this morning and said to you, I just want to announce to you that I don't have any sin. There's no sin in my life. I, I'm, I've not, I can't tell you the last time I've sinned. The only person that would be deceived in this room would be me. I'd be the only one. Because you could look at my wife and she said, that's not true. You look at my brother-in-law and said, that's not true. You could talk to a staff member and say, that's not true. You talk to our deacon and say, that's not true. We've seen him when he has not been a holy man of God, when he's gotten on his last nerve. You see, any time that we just refuse to deal with the sin issue, we are deceiving ourselves. It's not the world that we're deceiving by the facade that we put up that we say everything is okay. It is a deception of self that is going on. And I need to be as sensitive to sin in my life, darkness, as I am when I'm in the darkness and I turn a light on in the morning and my eyes have to adjust and I kind of get startled. You know, I, I have to have that kind of sensitivity that when God shines a light on my life, I don't close my eyes and pretend that he's not talking to me. I, I need to be under his microscope. I, I remember watching a program one time, and this is frightening as much as I've been in hotels lately, but I remember watching a program one time where they got these intense microscopes and they showed you all the stuff that's on your pillow in a hotel room just makes you want to sleep standing up I mean it just you know you you don't want to put your feet on the floor you don't want to get in the bed you just think you know can they just Clorox everything it, it shows you things that you don't see with the with the naked eye you have to get under the scrutiny and the intensity of that microscope in the same way I need God to show me what I can't see and what I'm unwilling to see that I don't want to see but I need God to shine that light on me so there must be a consciousness of sin not but not just a consciousness because you're not going to change anything with just a consciousness there needs to be a confession of sin first John 1 9 may be one of the most well-known and least applied verses in all the Bible because we know it but do we do it if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness now has God forgiven us of our sins yes positionally we are forgiven we are under the blood as believers our sins have been washed away God dealt with our sins past present and future and established with us a relationship with Jesus Christ through the blood and the atonement of Jesus Christ but that's positionally practically I have to maintain my fellowship and so that's why he says if this, if we confess sins which means I'm understanding that you know you have sins confess is to agree with to say the same thing as God if we say the same thing as God and we say about sin what God says about it that's the key I say about my sin what God says about it not that it was a oops or a mistake or a misunderstanding but it was sin now let me ask you 
What if God held a grudge against you like you hold a grudge against other people? When you offended him by your sin, what if God held on to the offense like we hold on to our offense? I'll never forgive him. Aren't you glad God doesn't act like us? And why do we act like we do knowing that God doesn't act like us? And since we're supposed to be children of God, why don't we do the same thing that God does? And practice the same kind of forgiveness that, that God practices. But, but you see, if I'm holding on to it and I'm worried about my opinion or my rights or me being right, then I live in fear and bondage, not in hope. And the gospel is a gospel of hope. And so there needs to be a confession of sin. I need to say the same thing that God says. I need to be in agreement with God. So there's several things here. First of all, the confession needs to be continual. It needs to be continual. The, the, everything in 1 John is in present tense. It's not that, oh, I confessed sin 10 years ago and I haven't had to worry about it since. Everything is present tense in 1 John. It is continual that I need to confess just as easily and just as quickly as when I know that I've sinned against God. That when I'm aware of it, not that I feel like confessing, but it's by faith I believe what God says. If I confess, He is faithful. Not only is it continual, it's complete. If we confess our sins, plural. Now that's more than, Father, forgive us our sins, amen. That's, that's not confessing sin. You committed a specific sin, you need to confess the specific sin. Call it what God calls it and confess it. You know, there's a song, old song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Sometimes we need to count our sins and name them one by one. Because we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to hear ourselves saying to God, God, I've done this and this and this and this and this and I ask you on the authority of your word and by the power of your blood to cleanse me of that sin so that I can be in fellowship with you. You see, if I'm not willing to face my sins, then I can't face my Savior. If I want to look my Savior in the face, I don't want to look at him ashamed. Thirdly, it is to be a confident confession. It is to be a confident confession, which means I'm not supposed to live with baggage and guilt and bondage of the past. Now, now here's, here's something that happens, and I want to go through this very quickly. Some of us end up confessing things that we did years ago over and over and over and over and over. I mean, you did something when you were nine years old and you've told God about it 35 times. He heard you the first time. He heard you the first time. You see, when, when I have to think I've got to convince God to hear me about this specific sin, then I'm, in fact, calling God a liar because I don't believe He's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin. And all that is, ladies and gentlemen, is the devil telling you. You see, the devil lays on guilt. God convicts. The devil is general. 
God is very specific. When you ask God to show you what's in your heart, he's not going to say, well, there's a spot somewhere, figure it out. He's going to show you specifically where it is that you need to be right in your relationship with God. And by the way, mark it down, write it down somewhere in your Bible, in your notes somewhere, and don't forget this. The Holy Spirit does not convict you of sins he's already forgiven. The Holy Spirit doesn't drag up your past that is already under the blood of Jesus, that you've already confessed in trying to stay in a right relationship with God. That's the enemy. You stay current in your confession, and God stays current in his forgiveness. Now, how, do I, how can I be confident in my confession? First of all, I need to take God at his word. I need to take God at his word. If we confess, he will forgive. Psalm 103.3 says, Who pardons all our iniquities. Psalm 103 and verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarding us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness. And toward those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now everybody knows why east and west is there, don't you? We've talked about this several times. Because if you go north and south, north and south eventually run. North eventually runs into south, and south eventually runs into north. If you go east and west, east and west never meet. God is very specific about what he puts in his word. What he's saying is, when I cast your sin as far as east is from west, it means that they never come back. They're gone from my sight. I see you through the eyes of Jesus. I judge you through the blood of Christ. Not north and south, east and west. It also says in the Bible that he takes our sin and casts them into a sea of forgetfulness. And you know what we do? We come to a time like refresh and we come down here at the altar and we say, oh God, forgive me this and forgive me that. And we kneel and somebody prays with us and we feel better. And then about two days later, we're sitting out there in our spiritual boat and we're casting trying to reel that sin back up just to make sure we got it all covered make sure it's dead make sure it's really been dealt with and we keep going back out there and looking for it it's into the depths of the sea it's into the sea of forgetfulness you need to say what God says and what God says is more important than what you feel or what the devil whispers in your ear or what anybody thinks about you now this is not an excuse to sin and do whatever you want to do it is a covering that God gives us for when we sin if he didn't say go on and sin he said if we sin so we take God at his word secondly we remember we have an advocate now we talked about this but I want to go a little deeper just very quickly first John 2 1 my little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world see when I sin the devil comes and he tries to confront me or accuse me he's the accuser of the brethren what I'm supposed to do is confess my sin and then say to the devil go see my lawyer two things about my lawyer First of all, is his relationship with the Father. Do you realize that your lawyer has a relationship 
with the judge? Can you imagine being accused of something and walking in and you've got a lawyer and your lawyer is standing there and the judge walks in and, and he goes, hey, dad. Can you imagine what the prosecutor's going to say? We're sunk. We're sunk. This thing's going to get thrown out. This is a rigged deal. It's, it's all set up. The father always, listen to me, always does what the son asked him to do. And so if I'm related to my lawyer, I'm also related to the judge who has already nailed those sins to the cross. And so when Jesus comes and the devil comes and he says, boy, you know, Michael Katz the sorriest thing to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus says, well, you know, you're right. In fact, he's done things that you don't know about when you're off bothering somebody else. But one night in Panama City, he gave his life to me, and he's mine. You don't own him anymore. Case dismissed. His name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. His sin has been washed by the blood of Jesus. Not only his relationship with the judge, but he's in good standing with the court. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, here's what you need to understand. Jesus does not plead my innocence. Now, think about this. This is important. Jesus does not plead my innocence. He does not plead for me on the basis of my circumstances or the way I was raised. He does not plead for me on the basis of my personality. Jesus pleads for me on the basis of one thing, himself. That's his relationship with the court. Jesus pleads for me on the basis of his blood. Jesus knows I'm unworthy. Jesus knows that I don't deserve salvation. Jesus knows that I am an unclean sinner and that I've been unholy. He knows all that, but he doesn't plead trying to make me look better. He pleads himself. Now that ought to make you feel good about what God's doing in your behalf. Because even today, right now, he is pleading before the Father on your behalf. He's your advocate. Some of you are sitting in this room and you're weighed down with guilt and you're weighed down with baggage and you've got unconfessed sin and the Holy Spirit's interceding for you and Jesus is an advocate for you, but you've got to cooperate with him. You've got to agree with what he says about sin. It's the blood of Jesus that washes all my sin away. I want you to listen to this song and then we're going to have an opportunity to respond. Don't believe we've met, but I know who you are. Your story made the papers, 